Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome along to Writer's Routine. This week we're chatting to Matt Haig phenomenal bestseller Matt Haig. He has a real knack for for beautifully imaginative stories that have a real heart, a real understanding of humanity. Uh, His new one is called The Midnight Library. It's all about Nora Seed who uses books to take her to the lives that she feels that she could and maybe should have lived. Uh, We talk all about how he's not really that focused on the process as a routine. That he knows the way he works well enough now to not be too put off when things aren't happening and also to make the most of things when they are. Uh, We chat about why he writes and why he wants to unpick ideas of life and humanity. And, And you can also hear why editing isn't something that he thinks about too often. For me, it's all about the first draft. When I finish the first draft, even though it's ridiculous because you you know part of the writing process is going to be the editing process, I psychologically almost switch off after the first draft is sent and I I, I feel like it, it's done because you, you've tried, even though it's the first draft, you have to really see it as, as the final draft in your head because you've taken it as far as you can yourself. So when it comes to editing and second edits and third edits, um, that to me always feels a bit frustrating because stupidly, arrogantly, you felt like, well, I made it as good as I could and now I've got to do all this stuff. There's more on the way with Matt Haig this week in Writer's Routine. Yes, welcome along. My name's Dan Simpson. Thank you for giving us a listen. This is Writer's Routine. It's the show where we take a look inside an author's day to get some tips and tricks from the very best. Now, this episode is sponsored by the brand new book from Caroline Lawrence, and I think it will really help you out. If you're interested in the craft of storytelling, and I can only gather that you must be, that's why you're listening, then this book really is made for you. It's called How to Write a Great Story. And like all good things, I think, including this show, it does what it says on the tin. Caroline knows about writing a great story. She's written 35 books, sold over a million of them. Her Roman mystery series has actually been made on the BBC. She gives talks all over the place, well, normally all over the place, but now mainly on Zoom, uh, on the technique of writing for kids and for adults as well. Uh, And this book is a real joy of how to bring words to life. It takes you through the whole process, from the who, the what, the where and the why, right to the very end. And it is filled with 
different, really imaginative ways that you can bring the words out. In How to Write a Great Story, you'll get tips that you maybe hadn't thought of before, like um, torturing your hero on purpose. Things that will make you understand the theme better as well. Different ways that you can work on the three-act structure. It will help you understand the storyboard, talismans, the stakes, what to do if it's stagnating, why snacks can also help writing too, why it's important to put your smartphone away to help the story take shape in your head. Now, it's fantastically done, this book, and I kind of know about ways that people explain writing more than others do. Uh, I've spoken to over a 100 authors now on this very subject, trying to pull out great tips and bits of storytelling advice from them. And I promise I've never heard anything so clearly thought out and brilliantly structured as the tips and advice that's in this book by Caroline. If you're interested in the craft of writing and want to figure out some different ways in how you can get it done, you need to find out more about this book. Uh, It's the ultimate companion as well. It's one of those ones that you can read all the way through or you can pick up and find out what you need, when you need it. It's always nice to be reminded of this stuff. Uh, It's also beautifully illustrated as well in a way that brings to mind some YA books, I think. Uh, There's a great bit in there as well about how Pixar tells stories in a way that almost can't be beaten. Uh, but you can learn how to do it as well. Uh, It's in the new book by Caroline Lawrence. Uh, It sponsored the show. It's called How to Write a Great Story. I think it will really help you out. Do us a favour, help support the writing community that we've got here uh, and look up the book, How to Write a Great Story by Caroline Lawrence. Uh, I'll pop a link so that you can grab a copy as well in the episode notes and over at writersroutine.com. Now, this week on the show, we're chatting to Matt Haig and his rise really is something amazing. Uh, I first learned of him, maybe you did too, uh, uh, like many others I know, through um, through Reasons to Stay Alive that was published, I don't know, five or six years ago now. It was a book that he wrote about his mental health battles, and then after that, How to Stop Time, which I loved, about a man that keeps living and keeps living and keeps living and, and has many different lives through many different ages, and there are now plans to make a movie of that book with um, with Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, He's also written uh, Christmas kids books and animal kids books and loads more adult books. Uh, A follow up to Reasons to Stay Alive as well called Notes on a Nervous Planet. And his new one is The Midnight Library. It's all about Nora Seed, who feels she's let everyone down. Uh, Her life has been full of misery and regret. And then she finds herself in the Midnight Library. It's a place between life and death where she has a chance to make things right and to discover how her life could have been something completely different for good and bad. It's a stunning sliding doors book, really. And like most of Matt's stories, it's interested in humanity, in what it means to be alive. Uh, And we talk about that and why he focuses on that so much. You can also hear about the process of him working on Nora's character uh, and how she changed many times in many different ways throughout the process. You can also hear why he doesn't write linearly and also what editing has taught him, why he structures and formats his books so differently too, so uniquely. I think it's a really brilliant chat. I'm excited for you to hear it and we kick things off as we always do with what Matt sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. Um, I'm in my living room. And so I, I've got all the things you would expect to find in the living room. I've got um, sofas and a t- TV and a window. And we live in Brighton and we live up the hill. And we can I can just about, the reason we bought this house is we can just about see the sea because we're not opposite any houses. We've got a view straight down um, the hill. So I can see the sea and the um, wind farm on the horizon out at sea. 
and I've also got an electric pack piano, which this year for the first time have actually been starting to play. There's an app called um, Simply Piano, and I've been um, trying and failing largely to to get um, up to speed with piano. But my, my son's been firing away, and he, he, he's he's ro- rocking out on the piano. But yeah, I, I'm a bit slow and a bit of a 45 year old learning a new trick. But um, yeah. Getting there. That's what I can see. Uh, lots of cushions and uh, my daughter's ballet shoes, which are just on the floor because she had a Zoom ballet class earlier today. Slightly surprises me, I'll be honest. I Because I know that you are slightly interested in the in the practice of writing, um, that you, you've kind of retweeted uh, old writer's diaries from the past. Uh, I thought that you would have a very specific writing room like a classic romantic writing yeah. room, but you're in shared space. I am, and this is how I write. I, I will tell you that I do have a shed, and my aim was to get here and become sort of Roald Dahl and go out into my writing shed and convert it into a shed. Um, but I'm afraid that doesn't happen. I do have a treadmill in my shed, and I run in my shed, but I do not actually do any writing anywhere apart from... Um, on my sofa now I, I did used to when I started off um, be, started my first few novels uh, about 10 plus years ago I it, when we lived in York I did have a room where I went to write and it was very office like and it was my own sort of space to write but to be honest I didn't in, enjoy it very much and I often looked for excuses not to be in there and I think basically for me I write better and more comfortably personally um, if I feel like it's not work if I'm sort of I can kid myself easier that I'm doing it for fun and and for the, the hell of it if I'm writing on my sofa I've got my feet up and um, also another thing I don't mind background noise I actually kind of like it since the age of 18 um, I've had tinnitus. I had a ringing in my ears, which came on halfway through my history A-level um, exam. Stress caused, no doubt. And, I, you know, it doesn't really bother me most of the time. And often I can't even hear it. But when I'm stressed out or whatever, I have, I have sort of background noise. But it's meant that I actually don't mind and quite welcome a bit of, you know, like, kids being noisy in the background or radio being on or whatever. So I've learned to actually tune that stuff out. I've heard it. I can't remember which American writer it was, but uh, there's a writer, it might have been Jonathan Franzen or something, who said they can only write and get into the zone if they've got earplugs in and they they totally shut out the outside world. But, you know, if you have something like tinnitus, that's not even an option because you've always got that sort of sound in your head. So... Yeah, I don't mind. I don't mind outside distraction. I quite like um, writing in the sort of thicker things. That said, I only ever really write at home. Even before twenty twenty, I wasn't the sort of person who'd go into a coffee shop and sit there um, poetically gazing out the window or trying to get inspired like that. I sort of have to be in my own space. But beyond that, no, I'm I'm, I'm quite like being in um, on the sofa, just lounging with my laptop. Is there anything that you need around you as, as well as just the, the fact you're able to be anywhere, uh, whether you're able to be in your own space rather? Uh, is there like one consistent thing that you need to just help you tap into that storytelling mode? I don't have any kind of like um, 
objects or, or, or lucky charms or anything like that. I mean, I tend to have a, a small pile of books next to me. You know, often there'll be books that I'm sort of like using for research purposes that I'm dipping into. Um, obviously, that's slightly less essential nowadays in the internet age where, you know, I spend half my life, if I'm writing a book, on Wikipedia and using it to try and sound um, more informed than I am about things. I think there's a sort of... S- skill in what you have to develop when you're writing novels of sounding like you know more about something than you do um (laughs) which is kind of what i had to do certainly in my latest book midnight library because it's set in so many different places so one 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 hand i'm having to sort of research about glaciers in the arctic and the other hand I'm, i'm talking about rock concert venues in sao paulo in brazil and stuff like that and you don't go into necessarily a lot of detail about these things but you have to suggest within a sentence or two you have to give the reader confidence in the story you're telling so you have to know slightly more than you're writing down i think is the way way to always suggest that confidence in the setting and stuff so yeah books often help with that so there tends to be a pile of books um around me but no not beyond that nothing more um interesting or quirky than that i'm afraid aside from those books that might give me an inkling if i were to walk into your living room while you're not there but you're in the middle of a a book uh, would i have a clue about what you're writing about are there post-it notes is there uh notes strewn everywhere maybe you're pinning stuff to the walls no and even within the space of my computer i don't um generally apart from i have done with a few kids books i don't generally have like a a a sort of equivalent of a sketchbook or a word document where i just sort of put all my scrappy ideas i tend to write a story by writing a story and i tend to get ideas by actually writing there's a great quote i like from a french writer francoise sagan who wrote bonjour tristesse and she said um she writes in order to think and and i love that quote because it's kind of like it, uh, it sums up how i write in the sense that often i don't actually know what i'm going to write but if i sat abstractly and thought about it with a pencil in my hand and to write a list of what's going to happen in a plot i probably wouldn't get there but if i if i've got a vague idea of the scene i'm starting with or the character i'm starting with and i start to write it even if it's bad writing if i'm starting to write that then better writing will come and better ideas will come. And often ideas, and you'll surprise yourself. I think the most fun thing to me about writing, it's almost like, I suppose, sitting on a metaphorical fish, uh, you know, a riverbank where you've got your fishing rod in and you don't necessarily know what you're going to catch, but then you catch, I don't know, a blue marlin or something. And then... um, then, then, then you're pleased at what's there, but you don't necessarily know what's there. I mean, I know there are uh, great thriller writers. I, I'm thinking of a documentary I watched on Ian Rankin, where you know, and he has like whiteboards and he he maps it all out and he knows where it's going and how it's going. And obviously, if you're writing a thriller, I think that massively helps, or you'd probably go insane. But for me, um, I don't write chronologically, and I don't write. Um, you know, front front to back in terms of a book. So I, I write what's there and then hopefully from writing what's there, even if it's just a scene, other things will happen. And so it's not very uh, premeditated and it, it's kind of um, in the moment. And that's how I've always 
done it really and it does sometimes make editing a little bit of a nightmare process because you, you you often have got issues about timing and settings and all of that stuff but i i think hopefully for me the way i write it it, it ends up being the best novel that i could write for being like that because it's more sort of like uh unconscious and sort of um dreamlike i suppose that process without sounding too pretentious <laughs> expanding <laughs> on the uh, the fishing metaphor yes uh, is there anything you can do to the rod to the bait perhaps uh, <laughs> when when it when it when the fish aren't biting so when when the ideas aren't coming when you've got something mm. akin to writer's block i guess um is there anything that you do to to unclog things um, I don't always do it, but I think the only thing and the best thing you can do when, when you're stuck or you're uncertain and nothing's happening is to literally step away from the manuscript you're writing, step away from your laptop, step away from your computer, go for a walk, read a book, watch watch an old movie, um, spend time with your family, or you know, cook a nice meal or whatever it is, do something that isn't actively trying to get past that. And I, I genuinely believe a lot of the great writing that happens inside a book actually doesn't happen when you're literally writing that book. It happens when you're sort of getting ideas in the shower or when you're um, walking over the South Downs in Sussex or, or you're, you're doing something else. And it, often the very best moments happen without you actually forcing them. They're just sort of like you're semi-thinking about it or you're wondering about something in a sort of relaxed way and then it will come to you. Very often when you start to get stuck and you just continually stare at the white space of a word document you're more likely to stay stuck because you're very much aware that you are sort of frustrated and and, and stuck and you're physically tense and so yeah i think the best thing to do in those situations is to step away and to get some sort of creative inspiration elsewhere books are obvious one but you know i i love watching sort of old movies and stuff i think i think you can get so many great ideas from those sort of like um, classic Hollywood uh, era films of the 1950s and 40s and things like that. I'm quite a late person, so I go to bed quite late and then I wake up at, uh, I have about sort of seven hours sleep and then I uh, wake up, get ready at eight. On a good day, I will go for a run and do a little bit of stretching afterwards and sort of that clears my mind and that's not necessary uh, for my writing life, but that's just for my mental health. I, I find running super beneficial. Then I'll get up, obviously, have breakfast. And then I feel like morning, for me, is the best place to get a lot of writing done. If you, if you, Certainly if you're on deadline, certainly if you've got word counts to think about, certainly if you want to get a lot done. For me, writing in the morning is so much more um, productive than writing in the afternoon. For every paragraph I would get done in the morning, it would be like a sentence in the afternoon. I'm probably about three times faster. So for some reason, before lunch, uh, my brain's just sharper. And um, so I'd write in the morning. And um, I, in terms of how much I get done, that is such a variable, depending on where I am within um, the book. Uh, I go for weeks and months even writing next to nothing. And then I will have a sort of three-month, two-month period of writing, you know, over a thousand words a day, being super productive, working right through Saturdays and Sundays, and all of that and I, I I very much get into into those zones I have months of procrastination and wasting time on the internet and then I have months of the opposite and just sort of like being um super focused I'll, I'll just be sitting there in my own little world chewing on my t-shirt or whatever just sort of firing away um and 
yeah, I kind of like that. There comes a point with me about halfway through a novel where I, I, I sort of see the whole novel. It's sort of, I've got to a point where I can actually see what exactly I'm writing and it's all there in my head. And I worry that if I don't write fast enough, I will lose it all. So I, I get into this point of just sort of writing as fast as I can and getting it all down. And, um, yeah, which, you know, I suppose explains as well the style of my novels as well, because I'm very into sort of short chapters, uh, fast sort of reading experiences, lots of white space. And that's how I often feel when I'm writing. It's very sort of um, quick, even if it's not literally quick in terms of uh, how many months it takes me. It can be quick in terms of how much I'm getting done in a day or whatever. So if if, if this is all happening for the most part in the morning, what what yeah. what, what time... Do you tend to find yourself drying up? Well, no, it's the, the, this would happen throughout the day. But I feel like a good writing day has a very productive morning. And then in the afternoon, it becomes a bit more, oh, I'll answer these emails or do this or do that. And, uh, you know, I waste loads of times on Twitter or whatever. And then it, it's less physically productive. Um, and I feel like if, if, if for whatever reason you do that in the morning instead of the afternoon, if you do your sort of wasting time on the internet, it becomes a bad, a bad day. I feel like you, I can't remember who said it, but they say, you know, your, your, your first sort of working hour defines the day of how productive it will be. And I, I, I think that really applies to me in writing. Um, I will have lots of, um, toast breaks. Sometimes I have to have a few little stretches because I've got sort of writers back from sort of over a decade of writing and on sofas and stuff. So I have to get up and do some stretches now and again, a little walk around, walk the dog. Um, but yeah, a good day will be um, will be a, a, a good morning, uh, basically. When you finished up for the day, I know you've already mentioned that ideas come to you when you're not really paying attention to them. And... I get the impression uh-huh. you're you're a storyteller where the story is almost all encompassing to you all the time. But in the evenings, when you're when you are done, are you good at switching off? Um, not really. We have a sort of uh, we still read to our kids on a night, so we sort of like um, have have a, a moment like we we make the meal and then we put the kids to bed and then when we come down and have our evening, it's kind of like the dividing line. That's the equivalent of sort of shutting the door, and that's time but often that is quite late so it'll be like 10 o'clock or something and then we'll come down and watch a bit of netflix or whatever and um yeah it, it depends really some days i'm better than others some days it's like a lot of loose ends and i'm sort of still getting back to messages and stuff and that's not so good um but ideally we'd come down and watch uh, you know a comedy like Shit's creek or something and uh, that's my preferred way a most typical way to sort of wind down in the evening rather typically also during the day Mm. is there anything that just helps you get through it um maybe like a cup of coffee at a certain time a slice a round of toast at a certain time maybe is there anything like a (laughs) (laughs) bottle of whiskey no um yeah it it depends really i mean i i have to you know beforehand it's for it's for going for a run and then um yeah having a having a nice lunch helps um yeah not not really just those peanut butter stops with the with the old toast and and um stuff like that chatting to the kids um i occasionally 
play the piano if I'm really getting stressed out because, you know, I, uh, I need to sort of put my brain to something that's a little bit thinky but not thinky about writing. So if something's really super stressing me out, I'll, I'll get on the piano. Um, but no, that, that's, that's a complete variable. I mean, the, the, the weird thing about me is even though, you know, I have a routine and we all have a routine, my routine um, – to, totally depends upon where I am within the writing process. So, um, you know, first draft, it can be very intense towards the end because I'm sort of trying to get everything down. Editing, when it's sort of second draft, third draft stage. I mean, I've got a very good relationship with my editor, but it's uh, um, it, it, it still feels very much like work. Like that's, that's the part of it where writing feels like it's a day job and you know you're almost in the office when you're sort of going through their comments and you you're responding you know to each comment some of them are frustrating you some of them you don't agree with some of them you think oh actually they've got a point but that's gonna be a lot of work that's the bit where um it feels like normal work i suppose and that would be the bit where i I probably have the most sort of sensible routine where you have your proper breaks at the right time and you you switch off at the right time and all of that because for me it's all about the first draft when i finish the first draft even though it's ridiculous because you you know part of the writing process is going to be the editing process i psychologically almost switch off after the first draft is sent and i i i I feel like it's done because you you've tried even though it's the first draft you have to really see it as as the final draft in your head because you've taken it as far as you can yourself. So when it comes to editing and second edits and third edits, um, that to me always feels a bit frustrating because stupidly, arrogantly, you felt like, well, I made it as good as I could and now I've got to do all this stuff. And it always does make it better and it is something you have to go through but because of the timing of it because you've had sort of three months away from it and in that time you've probably started working on something else your head is often in that other book so when you're editing um i suppose i'm less totally absorbed in it as when i'm doing um the first draft and that's reflected in the routine itself it'll be less hours it'll be a little bit more um chilled and a bit less intense i suppose if that makes sense on the editing, have you found over the course of what well, almost twenty books is it now of, of being edited? Have you found that it's it's made you a better writer in ways that you can notice and, and you you could tell me about? It's made me, I suppose, a little bit more um, telepathic in terms of what readers will think about certain things. So it's made me, you know, uh, it's made me being able to predict what an editor would say, or when I'm when I'm sort of being a little bit unclear, or when I'm being a little bit pretentious. I mean, I've definitely changed a lot, put it that way, in terms of you know, if you go back to my first novel, I wrote a novel called The Last Family in England, and that was published in two thousand and four. And that was the first novel. And I don't hate it by any means. And I had a lot of fun writing it. And it's very quirky. It's very sort of typical 20-something male writer being, doing a very sort of quirky, strange strange novel. But there's so much about that that I would write differently now. There's so many jokes I thought were funny that aren't funny. There's so many um, allusions to things that were overcomplicated and stuff like that. I'd fi- I feel like in a way I've become a simpler writer and purer writer. And that probably is largely due to being edited so many times and trying to be clear. I, I almost felt, and it was an insecurity when I started out writing that, there's almost 
that I had to be complicated about about things. And, and actually, the aim of writing is to to express something and communicate something as clearly as you communicate can communicate it. So I've become much more confident at, um, at being simple, I suppose, where simplicity is required and to be sort of pure and not to have any sort of like worry about that. And that is definitely, um, I think, from having um, editors, because I've had more than one editor, I've had more than one publisher and I obviously write children's books as well. Um, I mean, uh, the last 10 years, I've largely been edited by the same person, um, Francis Bickmore at Canongate, who's who's great. And, and I, what you, it's a very interesting relationship you have with an editor because over time, they, they've seen all your mistakes and all you know the bits that readers don't get to see and all, or they know all your sort of like flaws and, and words you overuse and different things you, you do wrong or spelling mistakes or grammatical mistakes you make. And um, yeah, so, so they, they, they kind of know you, they're the reader who knows you the best and they're the sort of most honest with you and you don't necessarily and likewise you know them so you know when they're being an objective editor or when you're being but when they're being a sort of biased reader with their own tastes and, and over time you sort of get better at that at predicting them and by default predicting how all readers are going to take it very quickly on the editing last is there is there a hill that you're simply not willing to die on that your editor wants to correct you and you think no this is this is staying in this is the way that i do things yes those hills change um largely um from book to book um with, with the midnight library uh there were certain bits where i was breaking the golden rule of you know telling and not showing but i literally i had my aim for this was to be, do something slightly different to, to a normal novel to actually um for it to sort of step over into something that's a bit more philosophical or a bit more like a mental health book and to have that narrator's journey actually speak to the reader sometimes directly, almost like breaking the fourth wall on TV or something or doing that Ferris Bueller straight to camera stuff. So there's a bit of that that goes on here that the editor wasn't too sure about. Um, sometimes there are experiments that the editor doesn't feel like are justified in making. and stuff. But then sometimes they'll, they'll have something radical to say that is totally right and means a total change like for instance i wrote a book called the humans and that was set um the first draft of that started in space and it started very much in sort of douglas adams territory uh, me trying to be funny with aliens in space um they said you know if you start with that you're probably going to lose about 90 percent of your potential readers for this book because the heart of this book is about human beings even though it's got an alien protagonist and it's about this that, and, the other. and literally i i chopped forty thousand words um in one edit and i rewrote like forty five thousand words just to get the beginning of the humans um right so yes, editors can be annoying, but they they they, they can unfortunately often be uh, right in their annoyingness. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're back with more from Matt Haig in just a sec. Now, this episode of Writer's Routine is sponsored by Caroline Lawrence's brilliant new book, How to Write a Great Story. Uh, You can grab yourself a copy uh, using the link in the episode notes and at writersroutine.com. She supported the show over on Patreon. If you would like your book to sponsor an episode of the show, that's what you need to do as well. Get to patreon.com forward slash writers routine and pledge to support us for a month. You can get loads by doing that. You can get our thanks. You can get little bits of merch and you can get the big sponsorship as well. Uh, It doesn't need to be loads. Just a little bit every month really means the world. It really helps us out. It helps us carry on doing this regularly. It helps us continue to bring you episodes with as many of the best writers around that we can. Uh, If you can help us out, please do. Whatever you can send, I promise, it really helps, it really goes a long way. And it just means a lot that you're willing to support the show in this way. You can do it over at patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. Let's get back to it then with more from Matt Haig this week on Writer's Routine, talking about a day in the life of his brand new book, The Midnight Library. Uh, In this half, we chat about, very simply, why he writes why he's so keen to uncover what it means to be human. You can also hear about how he structures a sentence, why he thinks so much about that, why he's always searching for the perfect sentence, why it's very important, what word finishes one. And we pick things up brilliantly, nichely, kind of nerdily, talking about font. I'm very big on font right now. Does he give any thought about what font he writes in? Generally, I will be just, you know, in your standard um, Calibri or uh, Times Roman. But I've been writing this new book, which is a nonfiction book called um, The Comfort Book. And because I'm I'm very determined that it's not to descend into just sort of like inspirational quote territory or Instagram, even though it's a book of comforting things, but to remind me that of, of its sort of higher purpose, I've been using um, Baskerville um, font, which is my favourite of all fonts. And it makes me feel a bit sort of like Arthur Conan Doyle writing it because it's it, it's got that sort of Victorian Sherlock Holmesian um, feel to it. It's a bit like Times New Roman, but time, a classier, uh, slightly old school uh, version. It feels very writerly. So yeah, Baskerville is my font of the moment. And I, I, and I genuinely think it has been changing what I've been writing because of how the writing looks, if that makes sense. Oh, it's very, it's very, I'm writing in it now. It is very classy. Yeah, it's a, it's a very sophisticated font. You feel, you feel like a Victorian gentleman. You just need a pipe. <laughs> now, um, so let, let's talk about the Midnight Library then. So uh, tell us about the moment, if you can remember it, the moment that the, the initial idea for what became the Midnight Library came into your head. What was the, the light bulb moment? How did it elevate a pitch itself to you? 
I think in a weird way, there wasn't a um, light bulb moment because for, for years, like literally 10 years, I'd wanted to write a story about parallel lives and I just wasn't getting the hook at all. There wasn't anything new to add, you know, you know, you think of the movies like Sliding Doors uh, or um, uh, what's it? It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, or you think of like Kate Atkins novels or you think of different uh, people who've played about in this sort of territory. And I didn't think I had anything new um to uh, bring to the mix. And then I, I was reading um, the uh, Sp- uh, Spanish writer Jorge Luis Borges, who wrote a lot of surrealist sort of short stories. And he wrote a, a famous uh, story, I think from the 1930s, um, about the Library of Babel, which was a sort of infinite library. It wasn't a library of parallel lives, but it was a library of um, every version of every book that could have been written and I, I that just got me thinking about well maybe a library would be the perfect kind of portal into um parallel lives because a library kind of is that anyway you know you go into a library and you you take a book off the shelf you enter a different world uh, and libraries are sort of like portals themselves so so as soon as I got the library that was the moment I didn't have a character I didn't have a title uh, but I just saw the library as 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 that space so that I suppose if there was a moment it was the moment I got the library and then rather open-endedly and I'm sorry for this but but what comes next as a writer? Now, this isn't as crap a question as, oh, how'd you get your ideas? But when you've got that very, like the first thing, okay, I know that this is going to be a library. I've wanted to tell this story for ages. This is how I'm going to get into it. Where does that, where does Nora come from then? Where does the character come from? Where does the rest of the plot come from when you've just got that initial, that that little seed? Um well, it's very good you said seed because she's called Nora Seed. So, yeah, characters um, do start um, as just a sort of germ of an idea. Nora took a long time. I mean, I, and she was really very different at the start. I mean, she was male at the start. The first time I started writing the central protagonist of the Midnight Library, it was a male character. Um, and the problem with that was it was too like me. It was too too much of me in there. It would be seen... Uh, if by readers, certainly a reader who's read Reasons to Stay Alive, it was just a version of me. I mean, all our characters are sort of slight versions of us, but it was too 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 much me. So um, then when I had the idea of switching the gender, I, it, it made it easier in a way, even though I've never been a woman, but po- possibly because of that, because it so obviously wasn't me, it made it easier to talk about the mental health of this person. Um, I knew this person, I knew the library would exist between life and death, and I knew it would be about someone who was in that, should I let stay or should I leave sort of mentality to be or not to be kind of question and um so i knew it'd be someone with all kinds of life dilemmas and regrets so with this book it was about working out what those regrets would be i knew this person would be full of regrets would have to think the grass is greener so then it was about thinking what those regrets would be and and to be honest even when i started writing it i didn't know what all of them would be i think i had the first one about owning a pub in the countryside um just because it had been an old one of mine which i thought would be a sort of um recognizable kind of everyday kind of dream and then they got slightly more fantastical into the sort of rock star territory and olympic champion territory and um yeah it just sped from sped from there but as i say you know you start with one place and then hopefully within that there'll be a little door opening to the next chapter or a next life and um yeah that was it really so that's how it works for you as you're going along 
what what do you know about the story as a whole before you even sit down and write that first sentence well generally for me it helps it does help to have a title i, don't, I can't remember when i got the midnight library but it, you know it wasn't immediately with this one but very often in my books I, I, i'll start with a title and that kind of even if it's an abstract title it gives it a tone instantly it gives it a sort of uh, a kind of sh- abstract shape in your mind of what it could be and uh, or what you'd expect as a reader picking up that book with that title and um then uh, you know after that it's about the character when I mean, you get the name for the character you get the age for the character then you get where that character lives and, and, and then you get the situation they're in and once you've got those four things um and certainly in this book you know there are other characters beyond nora but pretty much everyone in the book um serves nora in some way or is there to uh, give nora advice certainly in the case of a librarian the second main character mrs elm and so it was really this was a book primarily about the central character and uh, with Nora in this book, I, I put as much as myself, to, certainly in terms of my own sort of mental health history and stuff, into that character. So it became very easy to know who Nora was, even if the sort of regrets she had were different to my regrets, even if the other lives she could have lived were different to my other lives. Um, it felt it has to sort of get to a point where you almost feel like you're writing about yourself or your sister or, or someone you know that well so you're not having to necessarily describe them too much from the outside you know one thing I really uh, resist in books when I'm writing and also I don't particularly like it too much when I'm um, reading is over overt physical descriptions that go on too long I think you only need to lead know about a couple of details I can't I don't think there's more than like half a paragraph in the whole book on what um Nora looks like you know I mentioned she has dark hair at one point I mentioned you know what she's wearing I mentioned when she has a no makeup day and stuff but for me I, I feel like to actually inhabit the person's mind and to know them emotionally is so much more important and actually I think it can actually take away this is my own subjective opinion it's not it's not it's not a rule or anything but I I think it can slightly um take away when you when a writer gives you too much because then the reader's imagination isn't working I think I think sometimes if you can just make a suggestion like if a character's smoking a cigarette a certain way or um you know it, 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 it is is looking a certain way at another character you, you you can actually the mind can do a lot of work to actually fill that in an easy way and sometimes when you've got a massive list of physical descriptors it can be like you're trying to remember oh okay they're six foot two and they're wearing a tweed jacket and this that and the other and it becomes quite um a, a memory game whereas i feel like i i i try myself to be shorter and simpler um, when I'm describing characters. I, I feel like sentences have their own kind of rhythm to it. So each word within the sentence is there to serve um, the sentence. It's almost like you're searching for the ser- perfect sentence. And, and often my paragraphs will just be a simple sentence. In fact, in the Midnight Library, a, a couple of the chapters are just a sentence long uh, and so i'm a real like sentence person and i'm like a, a real quote person i like i like the sort of shape and feel of a sort of short quote um and i like getting that and often often the word to get there the words don't have to be particularly fancy pants or are difficult often it's very much the simplest word so i avoid trying to sound too much like a thesaurus um and to actually often not be shy about using the most obvious 
um, word or the most, um, not colloquial, but, you know, to, to use the sort of common, simple word. You know, some of my favourite words are monosyllables. They're just sort of archetypes like sky or home or love and all those. They've got such power. So I, I like to sort of throw some of those in. I, I, I love ending uh, a sentence with something like the word home or something because I just feel like it's got uh, a power through, through repetition and being used a lot. I tell you, going back to editors, actually, one thing my editor always questions me about is when I'm repeating words, I will very often deliberately repeat words uh, following on from a sentence before, following on, from, and they'll say, oh, you used the word ordinary uh, three times in that paragraph or whatever it is. And I'll be like, yes, I did, because I wanted to. So that that's one um, one area of disagreement we sometimes have. I, I, I feel like it's kind of rhetorical trick sometimes to hammer home a word that you want emphasising by using it quite a few times. But my editor does not always agree with me on that point (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting that you mentioned sentences there because one of the things i really wanted to to ask you is the first thing you notice about the book is the first sentence and it is it is quite a striking one i mean it's not giving too much away to say 19 years before she decided to die nora seed set in the warmth of the small library at hazeldean school in the town of bedford um good choice in bedford by the way now uh Uh, do you know do you know bedford I, i know of bedford but also it, it's it, a wonderful it, life. It, yeah. So, okay. No. Oh, yes. Great. Obviously. Now, doubly great choice of Bedford. <laughs> I was just thinking of Bedford, Bedford in the UK. Yes. Um, yeah. No, it is, it is for Bedford in the UK. But uh, Bed, Bedford Falls is the town in It's a Wonderful Life. So, uh, that's my little uh, Top of the cap. reference, I suppose. Yes. So, well, let me ask you about the first sentence. Um, how much do you think about that, about the very first thing a, a reader will see? Um. Yeah, uh, I I think about it uh, kind of a lot. Often the first page will be um, the last page I write because then you absolutely know what is coming and you know the book. And um, the first chapter, that first chapter, that sort of flashback chapter, even though it comes at the start, is still kind of a flashback because the rest of the book takes place in the uh, future from there. Um, Yeah, it was was kind of... um, kind of important to do and it was the very last thing i wrote i believe as well yeah so it was important in that sense yeah now all of your stories they're so they are interested in the concept of humanity uh of what what it means to be here what it means to be alive uh where where does that where does that come from well i guess i guess we know where it comes from but how important is it to you that these themes do crop up and occur throughout your stories? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the reasons why I write is to explore things uh, a bit philosophically and um, in terms of sort of our existence and feeling grateful about life and to sort of appreciate stuff. And, you know, we often have this idea that a book is there either to entertain us or make us think, but there's no reason that you you can't have your cake and eat it and try and do both those things. In fact, often when I'm reading a book, I, I am actually more entertained by the bits that are making me think about my life. But I don't feel like we should sacrifice plot at the expense of um, philosophical stuff or sacrifice some more sort of thoughtful stuff. At the, you know, I, I try and I try and find a plot that serves the philosophy of the book. So Midnight Life, Midnight Library. I mean, I did it uh, possibly um, better than 
I, I often do because the library itself served as a per, almost a as a plot device, but also as a philosophical device in terms of exploring Nora's life and idea of life, and therefore our idea of life as a reader. So, um, yeah, I think it is uh, something I like to do. I like to pepper it with philosophy. I, de- I definitely don't ever want to turn my books into some sort of academic treatise or something heavy. So my challenge then is to sort of see if you can talk about heavy life and death stuff and thoughts and stuff, but do it in a way that won't put readers off and to sort of like keep them engaged and to keep it as light as possible um, and all of that stuff. Now I've got two more questions. One is about, it's also about the work that you've done before. They're always quite stylistic. I mean, you mentioned earlier in that sometimes you like whole chapters that are just single sentences. Yes. Uh, That was certainly the case with, with, with reasons to stay alive and and it crops up here as well. Um, How, what, why is that important to you? How much thought do you give to, the, the the style the kind of the building blocks that make up this this house yeah i i i do i feel like there's a sort of visual aspect to writing i i, I like to imagine it on the page and this goes back i think to my experience of sort of mental health issues when i was younger and i actually found it quite hard to read physically a, a, a book and uh, often you know certainly if you were getting a book about mental health and stuff it would often be very academic and very dense looking and i actually like I like that feeling of reaching the end of a chapter in a book. So my idea was to to have that happen more, you know, to to have that sort of page turning quality by simply reducing the length of the chapters. So, uh, I, and I got this actually, this was something I got from a very first book from The Last Family in England because I wrote it and I wrote the book and it probably had about 12 chapters originally. And then I went through and I thought something's not working pace wise or something. And I didn't know what to change. So then I decided not to change any of the text, but just break it down into like a hundred chapters so some of them would just look like a little poem or something and that was and then it just felt right it felt it felt nice and in that book each of the chapters had just a one word title it was very simple and um from that moment on i i've i've sort of broken the sort of unwritten rule about chapters all being roughly between 10 and 20 words or whatever they tend to be in a, a normal book and and some i mean sometimes in the midnight library there's like a, a 20 page chapter there's a sort of standard long length chapter but other times there'll be like seven words or something and i i kind of like keeping it visually interesting i, I think there's something powerful about um white space around it um they, they say that like in chicago the skyscrapers look better than they do anywhere else because they've got all this space around them so you notice the skyscrapers more so unlike in say new york which also has classic skyscrapers they're all very cramped together in midtown new york whereas in chicago you can sort of walk around each skyscraper of their own sort of individual thing and so um yes to, to do use an architectural analogy is my dad's an architect um i like the idea of creating sort of space around the chapters to see them almost as this uh, a physical thing to see them as a visual thing as well as just a thing that goes into our minds um to make us think now i i came to you as i'm sure quite a lot of readers came to you uh with reasons to stay alive and yeah. that was hugely successful then after that because that i mean that's a non-fiction book it's about a very specific time in your life um after that, when you're writing a, a back to writing fiction, um, how did that feel? How much pressure, I guess, did you feel knowing that you've got a huge readership now? Yes, and 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 now now I'm now I'm on a fiction book. Uh, how did how did you feel about that? Yeah, well, actually, 
Uh, I the very first thing I wrote after um, Reasons to Stay Alive was a children's book. It was a boy called Christmas. My uh, story about Father Christmas as a boy, and I did that very differently, obviously, to Reasons to Stay Alive because I was almost trying to find the opposite book to reasons to stay alive because at that point i'd written that and it became my sort of like best-selling book up to that point and then everyone sort of knew me as mr depression and i kind of wanted to totally run away from that for a little while i got very panicky about it but yes it was lovely to have a successful book but because it was that particular book and it was very exposing it had my mum and dad in it it had all the sort of like worst days of my life relived in it i kind of wanted to escape into fiction and i escaped into children's fiction at that point and um it was it was a very sort of comforting thing to do to ha- be able to have that other world. And although I did end up going back to mental health in nonfiction and now in fiction, um, it was great to 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 sort of have that little battle with the publisher and to say, no, actually, I don't want to do reasons to stay alive too. I want to do um, something entirely different. So, in a strange way, it would have been harder, I think, to immediately have gone straight into uh, another nonfiction, another mental health book. And for me, it, I like, I think I write personally, I can't speak for anyone else, but personally, I write better, I think, if I almost treat each book like a new book, like it's my first book, like it's a debut, every single book. Um, is new and has to stand up on its own terms. And um, that's certainly what I tried to do with Midnight Library. That's what I tried to do with Reasons to Stay Alive. That's what I tried to do with the kids' books as well. So, so and it's a, a bit more of a challenge and it keeps you fresh because you see so many writers who get a degree of success or acclaim or sales or whatever. And um, they feel like, well, and, and I think publishers sometimes encourage it, but, oh, you have to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. And there's obvious marketing reasons for that. But I feel very fortunate that I've got a publisher, I think partly because they're, um, technically independent Canongate. Um, they're not one of the big six. Uh, uh, they, they've sort of followed me where I want to go and I've had that sort of creative freedom to do that. So I kind of like that difference of, of each book. And, and so it doesn't feel, uh, it, it would feel harder for me sometimes to stay in the same um, space, if that makes sense. And that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Huge thanks to Matt Haig for coming on the show. His new book is The Midnight Library. You can grab a copy in the episode notes below and over at writersroutine.com. Uh, by the way, you might have seen this week uh, over on Twitter, I am doing a thing, trying out a thing, where I'm putting these on YouTube as well. Kind of shouldn't have left it so long, really. Uh, I just think it's good to be where anyone is. So if you would prefer to listen to these on there if that's easier for you maybe while you're writing at your desk or busy working there and so you don't always have to download it uh you can do it there just search writer's routine podcast on youtube and make sure you hit the like button make sure you subscribe it will take a long while because i'm kind of it takes a long time to put these things on youtube and i've got 120 episodes to to go through so bear with me on that um and massive thank you to caroline lawrence as well for sponsoring this episode with her brilliant new book how to write a great story I absolutely think you should pick it up. I think it'll be really helpful to you. It's all about the very purpose of this show, how to write a great story. It says it in the name. Uh, Thank you, Caroline, for that. If you want to sponsor us as well, get to patreon.com forward slash writers routine and you can help us over there as well. Uh, In the meantime, we will see you next week. Make sure you leave us a review over on Apple Podcasts and give us a follow on Twitter. We are at Writers Pod on there. And I'll see you soon. Bye. (laughs) 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 